Duliaba, ape call, Duliaba, ape call, Duliaba. Don't be a square, Joe. Go ape. Now, and now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. What's the matter with them? I guess you might say they just joined the human race. Gun! 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 Power! We shall get them and we shall keep them. With gun, we will smite the humans! All humans! And then we will smite Caesar! Ape. Clever. Ape. And you always were clever. I was told how you chose your own name. But every Caesar must have his Brutus. Did you know that? Ape? Do you understand that? Ape! And now Ape City is about to lose its king. No, Colt, no! Hey everybody and welcome to a special episode of Two True Freaks. I don't know if this is a commentary monthly Monday or if this is a bonus episode or what it is, but I'm Paul Spitaro and I am joined today by my friend Andy Leyland. Hello Paul. Hey Andy, how you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you very much. Are we the substitute bench? Yes we are. We, this, <laughs> we, we, we are in play here because Chris and, and Scott didn't want to do this movie. <laughs> So they brought out the supply teacher that people can throw pencils at. <laughs> so we're here to do the commentary for Apes Month for Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And I think we're going to jump right into it. So if you have a copy of the movie and you're going to go along with us, we are right just before the opening scene. No fanfare. Just uh, as soon as we press play, we're going to go right into the jungles of North America. So I guess we'll count down three, two, one, go and start it on go. Okay. Three, two, one, go. All right, and I have a jungle scene right now. North America, America twenty six seventy. Seventy AD. Ooh. <laughs> I, was, I was. I did actually do a tiny amount of research about the timeline for this, but doesn't the timeline for the Planet of the Apes movies just not add up if you think too hard about it? Yeah, time wise, it definitely doesn't, and in this movie in particular, I think it doesn't when you think about conquest coming before it and then going into this yeah because the the it's almost like the ape culture has advanced way way too much for you know caesar to just be a young father almost you know he's got a what is it a 12 year old son something like that yeah if, if you think that did conquest take place in escape took place in the time that it was filmed which was what 73 escape Yes, it was around 72, I think, actually. So, Conquest was what, 15, 20 years later? Yeah, like the early 90s. So, the early 90s. So, then is this now, like now, 2010, 2012-ish, do you think? 
I, I was putting it at 20, 10, 2010, uh, and if you give it the benefit of the doubt and you say, okay, well, you know, maybe Cornel- uh, Caesar and Lisa were married for a few years before they had a baby, mm. and maybe the uh, ape, you know, the ape village developed a little bit more, then you say, okay, maybe it's 2020, maybe it's even, let's go crazy and say it's 2030. Right. Still, to have these people saying, you know, oh, like uh, at one point, uh, Paul Williams, uh, Virgil, starts saying, oh, he was my teacher, talking about somebody and everything. It's like, you know, how, how long has this culture existed, you know? Yeah, and it's it seems it's a very short amount of time for the apes to have completely taken over and mankind to have lost everything like electricity and cars and everything. For everything just be so burned out. There was supposed to be some sort of bomb. Yeah, is that the end of the previous one? Because the, the fourth one is the one I've seen the least. For some reason, that's the one that wasn't on heavy rotation when I was a kid. Mm. So it's well, the one I'm least familiar with, the fourth one. The fourth one, I'm sure Scott and Chris will have, uh, by the time we get to this, they'll have gone over it. But mm. there, there was an ending to that one uh, that was a little bit darker and due to, I guess, a screening that they had and the uh, opinions they were getting back, they lightened it up some. Yeah, uh, the ending to the fourth one is shockingly bad, even when you don't know that, because it's just off-camera voiceover, isn't it, on Roddy McDowell's eyes. Yeah, because the speech he gave was different. They changed the speech, and they they, they weren't willing to actually refilm it. So So it was all done with cutaways and voiceover. Yeah, exactly. And and that may be why the fourth one doesn't really work. I mean, let's just, well, we may as well get into that, because let's be honest, lovely listeners, the opening to this film, the first eight minutes is recap from the previous two films. So where where did you first discover the Planet of the Apes? Uh, I've been on on board since day one. Really? Did you see this at the cinema? I saw all five of them in the cinema. I I saw the first one. I guess I was five years old when the first one came out. And I remember, I distinctly remember my dad taking my brother and I to see it. And I loved it from the beginning. And then I've seen every, I saw every one of them in the movies, uh, multiple times, including, uh, going to a theater with my brother and seeing all five of them in a marathon showing, but getting kicked out before it was done because we started fighting during the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. See, I got. I saw them all on TV. I was introduced to the first one by my granddad. He wasn't a big science fiction fan. He was more cowboys and westerns and Charlton, but he liked Charlton Heston. So, but he knew I was a science fiction fan. So he's like, sit down, watch this with me. You'll enjoy this. And I loved it. I must have seen the first one on TV. God, the mid to late 70s. So I want to be very old. I'll have only been about five or six. And then I know I'll have watched all the others, but I think because I've seen them on TV, I don't think I saw them in order. Mm. But then I discovered when my mum met my stepdad, he has a box of the British Planet of the Apes Weekly. So I read all of them. And I think it was the comic adaptations where I read the order of it. And the first time that I actually followed the storyline all the way through. I mean, you and I have just said the timeline doesn't really add up. But the fact that each movie progresses the story and you can't argue a case this one does bring it a full circle i think that's quite clever especially now when the lazy option is just to reboot it every three films yeah i I think this one is a little unfairly maligned as far as the story goes i understand the special effects and the budget were on a shoestring by this point but i think the story covers some you know pretty pretty strong concepts first of all 
like you say, bringing it full circle. But it also, you know, they really do hit on the uh, the conflicts, the societal conflicts between the still existing humans and and the apes, between the humans that are in the apes camp and the apes that are there. Uh, you know, the, the the between the gorillas and and the chimpanzees, they really don't have much of the uh, the orangutan conflict at all, but. I think that they're hitting on a lot of heavy issues. Probably the one area that I think the script lacks is it doesn't really have much in the way of clever satire. No, but yeah, I I, I pretty much agree with that. The, the satirical element has kind of gone away, but I think a lot of that was Rod Serling in the first one. I, I think he, the second one had some too with the whole worshipping the bomb and with how... Worshipping uh, the bomb, yeah. Very commandy. Yes. The last boy on earth. Uh, yeah, I, I was watching this yesterday in preparation for this. And I do, I think the reason the films have held up is there is an awful lot of political subtext to them and social subtext that even this one, I, I had a look at a number of reviews that it got at the time it was released and a couple of people, I think Roger Ebert was very scathing of it. But watching it yesterday, I think this held up as a piece of entertainment. It isn't as the shock of the new which you got with the first one, isn't there anymore. But certainly the writers are trying to say something about war and conflict and whether man can actually get along with each other and whose responsibility it is and at what point do you put down your weapons and say, we're not going to kill today, to quote Captain Kirk. And Paul Williams, I thought, was really good in this. I think he's brilliant. We've not seen him yet. We'll talk about him as we go along. But I thought he was, he was quite impressive. Yeah, I, I did too. I, I I thought he was good. Now, uh, in the scenes, I think it's in scenes with the lawgiver, uh, John Landis, the director, has got a uh, small part. Yeah, I saw. And isn't, is David Gerald in this one, or is he in the fourth one? I think he might be. I'm not sure. The one that he did the novelization for, he's in as an ape. And I don't remember if it was this one or Conquest. Yeah, I'm really not sure on that. Uh, but but the interesting story I heard from Landis was, you know, he was starting out in the industry at the time, and uh, somehow he ended up talking to John Huston, and he was very impressed with John Huston. You know, he's a great director, he's been a significant actor, you know, in small parts, but at least he's been significant in some movies, uh, and, and certainly wonderful as a narrator, just because he had such a cool voice. But uh, he went to him and he says, you know, why would somebody of your stature do this? And he just... You know, uh, Houston looked at him and just said, you know, paraphrasing it, something to the effect of, well, my boy, you just don't turn down a paycheck. <laughs> and that was it. That was his whole take on it. That's fair enough. Oh, and the amount <laughs> that he's in it, he probably he probably banged this out in a day. It was probably the makeup that was the, the chore for him. Because yeah, the, the mask work <laughs> isn't as good in this one. Certainly, there are. There seems to be more visible lines on the first where they've stuck the appliances, and a lot of the actors aren't as good as Roddy McDowell as expressing themselves through the mask. Yeah. Because uh, on the special features on the DVD, McDowell says essentially what comes through as a subtle emotion in the mask is you being really over the top and exaggerating it in reality, and. Some of them don't seem to quite master that, and the mouths don't move as well as they did in the early ones. So yeah, like the budgetary requirements are starting to to show. Well, the budget, budget wise, uh, I looked that up, and they only had estimated budgets. But the first movie had a budget of five point eight million dollars estimated. Really, nineteen sixty seven. Yes. Why? I mean, that's a lot of money when you consider Star Wars was only in between seven and nine. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's that's an estimate, so I don't even know what that's based on. So well, that was, that's I, a big budget film. I can't speak to its accuracy, but by the time we got to this movie, the budget was $1.8 million. Right. So, okay. It's it probably 1.7 to Roddy McDowell and $100,000. <laughs> For everybody else. <laughs> that's probably a lot close to the truth than we'll ever know. Uh, I mean, I guess Claude Akins was the only other actor of any significant note with a de- with a decent sized part in this. I mean, Paul Williams, as you said, was great in it, but he was not a uh, a big name actor. Well, he gets an introducing credit, doesn't he? So that kind of implies this was either the first thing or one of the first things he ever did. Yes, I, I would say that's probably accurate. If if he's if he had done any acting before this, it was probably on TV shows or something like that. Yeah, again, after this, he'll have been in Smokey and the Bandit. Oh, yeah. Big and little Enos Burdett. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, just just going to the movie a little bit, uh, as I was saying about the uh, culture uh, clash between the two uh, communities, they're in the classroom right now, and you have the chimpanzees sitting together in one group, and you have the gorillas sitting together in, one gr- in another group, and I don't see any orangutans in the group. No, there's none of them around. This I liked this scene a lot, as somebody who has taught teenagers. Which, I mean, I did, you don't know what age group they are because Aldo's here, so he's presumably not a teenager. But they do sit in cliques and they do all sit in the same place. And there is always one who just doesn't want to learn and disrupts everybody else. Mm. So I, I actually thought this scene was quite accurate. I almost feel like it's the old, uh, the old adage, like if you went to prison, you find the biggest, toughest guy and you just punch him. Yeah. <laughs> if you're the teacher of the class, you just got to go over and, and take Aldo and teach him a quick lesson, and then the rest of the yeah. class will fall in line. You've got to take that guy out of the class's suit as quickly as possible and nullify him. Uh, here's, here's Paul Williams. He's just shown up on screen. Yeah, and, and I like I like just the whole way his character is written, that he's, uh, you know, he's one of these guys that if you just give him the stage, he'll never stop talking. Yeah. Well, I liked him. I mean, he's obviously the smartest one of the bunch of them, which Roddy McDowell's character recognizes. But even though he's the one promoting peace and he's the one who's saying, look, the humans actually didn't do this. This came from within. When we get to the battle at the end, he's still willing to fight for his culture. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. Sometimes you do get a lot of the, the films, it's one or the other. And this was recognizing, no, we, we do need to defend ourselves. Yeah, it, it, he basically he almost took the middle between Cornelius and uh, Cornelius. I keep saying Cornelius, Caesar and Aldo. Mm. Whereas Aldo was a warmonger and Caesar was clearly a pacifist. He he was more in, along the lines of let's just apply some logic to this and let's see what we need to do. Well, and ultimately, what you just said about this classroom here, this classroom scene, this is the film in microcosm. Oh, and they Caesar, just showed some orangutans. I'm sorry, <laughs> Caesar has to take Aldo out at some point because he's a constant threat to his authority. And the fact that he waits so long to actually do it is probably what led to the situation that we get at the end. If if Caesar had done something about him early on here, like smacked him down and said, no, I'm in charge, that would have diffused him and the power that he was building. But it didn't happen. This bit's good. I love this bit where the teacher actually says no to Aldo when he's going to trash somebody's work. And that is the the worst word that you can say to the apes. Yeah, and then uh, Paul Williams' speech here, uh, Virgil's speech, is just full of exposition. Yeah, (laughs) he delivers it very well. 
Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, from a uh, character point of view, I think Caesar is a very reasonable man and kind of just expects all of his uh, all of his apes to look at things the same way. And is just kind of taken aback somewhat by the fact that the gorillas have this totally different attitude and that they're, they're not willing to listen to reason. Is this so? Was all this filmed on the same sets as the other ones? Because it doesn't look the same. I think this is just on a, a on a studio lot. I, I I don't think it's the same as Ape City from the first movie. I think that must right. have been dismantled at some point. Because the TV series that followed would use lots of stock footage from the first film. And you, you got to figure the third and fourth films didn't use this set at all. So or use the Ape City set at all. That's I mean Ape City had those. Uh, those huts on the ground this is all tree houses too mm. so I'm, I'm pretty confident this is a different totally different set right because it makes sense that they would evolve the city as well so it does make sense this is a bit more rustic yeah definitely and you know and cheap <laughs> <laughs> filmed somewhere in california even caesar's house you know not much of a palace for the king no Roddy McDowell returning as uh, his own son. Which one did he skip out on? Was it the fourth one? The second one. The second one. Roddy McDowell's not in, right. Yeah. Oh, Austin Stoker from Assault on the- Precinct 13. Oh, is that who that is? Yeah, that's, uh, he, he's the police officer in charge of the precinct, which isn't actually Precinct 13 in the film. Now, now a lot of people... Uh, don't realize that this is a different actor than McDonald from the set from the fourth movie. Uh, because apparently the actor from the fourth movie, and I couldn't tell you his name offhand either was unavailable or didn't want to be in this. So it was supposed to be the same character and then they just changed it to make it his brother. Yeah. Well, I, again, I did, I did some flicking through the planet of the apes magazines and Austin Stoker said he went for the interview on something like the 29th of December on the 31st of December. He was on set <laughs> yeah, they moved these along. Well, they came out a pace of one a year, so they couldn't mm. sit too long. Uh, you know, while the while the one before it was in release, so they couldn't wait too long before they started production on the next one. Yeah, but I wonder if he was a last minute replacement then. Probably be, for him to be on set so quickly, because uh, the interview with him said he's lucky that the first couple of scenes were them wandering around the Forbidden Zone, so he had no lines to learn. So he could learn his lines why they were filming those scenes, because he he had no dialogue. Mm-hmm. The yeah. little kids are good in this as well, aren't they? Well, there's really only the one little kid who has a significant role. Young Cornelius, right? I mean, I don't think there's anyone else throughout the movie who has anything, but he plays his part well. Yeah, he's really. I really liked him. I thought he was really quite impressive. I th- I thought he played his part well as more physically than. Vocally, sometimes sometimes his his delivery of his lines is a little stilted, but but as far as conveying emotion and and all of that, I thought he did a terrific mm. job. Here we See, go. That's that's the Aldo. They're almost running Caesar over with his horse, and that should be the message. Okay, he's got to be taken down now. Yeah, and he doesn't do anything about it. So there's a certain element that, as a leader, he should have recognised that sooner. Now they, but you see here, while they're nice to them, they still have the humans kind of almost in a, uh, 
you know, in a, in a servant Yeah, the subservient situation. to the apes. So there is not equality. No, essentially all they've done is turn it around. Whereas we were once, they were once our slaves, they've just turned it around. I mean, Caesar's a very benevolent slave master, but that's what he is. I yeah. mean, Paul Williams, Virgil's reaction to what the teacher said, he was very, I'll put in a good word for you with Caesar, but what you just did was wrong. And it's, again, there's a, there's a race relations subtext to the film that I don't think the fifth one gets a lot of credit for. I actually, when I was watching this yesterday, I was quite impressed by how much it held up. And I didn't think it was as awful as everyone says it is. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I like all five of them. That's I, I love all five of them. The only one I never really got into was the series. And I've, I've got them on DVD because at some point they came down to something like six quid. So I bought the lot and I watched the first couple and I was, it's okay. And I do mean to get back to it. Ron Sadowski recommended two episodes to me on the back of, I just did a top 10 thing for another show I do. And he got in touch and said, try these two. These are good. So I'll give those two a go at some point. But yeah, the series, I don't even remember seeing the series as a kid. I don't know if it got erred over here or what. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I mean, and, and you would have been of an age where when you were first getting into the movies, that's probably about when the series was on. Yeah. So I could see where that might skip, you know, you might not be ready for it. I was at the point where the movies were being shown on TV and I would sit there with a uh, cassette recorder and actually record the dialogue. So I could listen to it again, you know, the very primitive version of a VCR. Yeah, uh, just the audio. But I, I was very into it. And yet, when the series came on, I remember watching the first couple of episodes and then losing interest. So, and, I, and like I said, I was very into it and I still lost interest in it. So the series, I have, I've never sat and revisited the series to any great length. But I'm not thinking that I would love it because I didn't love it then. Mm. Well, it's it is just the the seventies TV template. It's the fugitive or the Hulk, isn't it? They they they're wandering around, blundering into problems, and then moving on to the next adventure. Yeah, it's just uh, in Apes World, and Matt Leonard's the general in that one, isn't he? Is he Urko? Yeah. Urkel? I think it's Urko. It's definitely right. not Urkel because that's uh, that TV show, uh, whatever it was, with the uh, annoying nerd kid. Oh, right, yeah. I know the one you mean. But I, I, I think I would have been more enamored with the TV series had it picked up the same timeline. Yeah. But it, it was basically like an alternate take on it, and I think that's what made me lose interest in it. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. Like I said, I've only watched the first couple. I didn't. It's not terrible. It was kind of, it's, you know, in my mind, it was Starsky and Hutch in, on Planet of the Apes. Yeah, it's, it's it's not like V the series, which is god-awful when you compare it to the, the miniseries. Mm. And, and what that miniseries, I think, was made with the intention of making the series. Mm. As opposed to, you know, this was just trying, you know, they they'd basically run the course with the movies and it was like, okay, what can we do now? <laughs> How else can we milk this cash cow? Oh, they they didn't miss a turn on on milking the cash cow. As much as I love this property, uh, they they certainly uh, you know clearly they were they were capitalists in their uh, <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah, in how they pursued this within the confines of that. Though I mean, everyone's gone into this the fifth in the series now, knowing what it is. But I think it's a testament to their creativity. They've not just churned out another apes film they have actually tried to make something that builds on what has gone before instead of just completely 
getting rid of it, whilst also stands on its own, whilst he's also has a subtext to it. There's some meat to the story. Mm-hmm. So I think that's testament to the creativity of the people involved in it. They haven't just tossed it out. They've gone, yeah, we're just doing another sequel, but what can we do with this one? Yeah, so and, it, and bringing it full circle. According to Roddy McDowell, some, for some, to some extent, they think bringing it full circle was an effort to say, okay, we can't do anymore. It's done. Right. Because they kept cutting their budget and asking them to do a new one. And and they, they according to what Roddy McDowell said in the uh, Behind the Planet of the Apes documentary, mm. it sounds like they, you know, they kept thinking, okay, that's it. We're done. We can't do anymore. And then they'd say, okay, do another one. Okay, how are we going to do another one now? You know, see that scene though with the little boy. You can quite clearly see where the appliances are attached to his face. Mm. Whereas on the earlier films, I don't think they were they were quite. As, although that may be something to do with the fact that he's a child, and maybe the makeup was different. Maybe he. Maybe they didn't just didn't have the ability to make him sit in a chair for as many hours as they would. Yeah, and, and it well. might not. It might not have even been impatience. I know there's you know child labor laws with using. Yeah, that's kids. what I mean. Because he's a kid, they may the applying of the appliances may have had to have been a completely different procedure than it is with the adults. Lures with Farrah. <laughs> you could. I mean, his. But you could see cl- pretty clearly where his appliances come on too. Yeah, so that's what I mean. The, yeah, the the makeup budget isn't quite as good as it used to be. I love seeing the uh, the photos that they have. I don't think I've seen much in the way of footage, but certainly photos of them, you know, on the set having lunch, having you know the mouth <laughs> mouthpieces removed, but the rest of the makeup is still on. Yeah, and the one there's a brilliant one of one of them having a cigarette in full light makeup. <laughs> that I've seen. I don't remember if it was in one of the magazines or the comics or something, but that was a great photo. Roddy McDowell was a photographer, wasn't he? He was an amateur photographer. Oh, was he? I so, didn't know that. So a lot of the stills from behind the scenes are from his collection. Oh, that's that's interesting. I had no idea. I didn't know that. Roddy McDowell was great. What's interesting here as well, Batman the Animated Series, Roddy McDowell was um, the Mad Hatter right. and Paul Williams was the Penguin. Oh, yeah, that's true too. So, 20 years in the future, there will be Batman villains. And Roddy had already been a Batman villain. He was the bookworm in the 60s TV show. Yes, there was a return for him. Yeah, so there's a lot of Batman connections. That is Farrahur, isn't it? All he needs is the flick. Yeah, (laughs) he just needs a curling iron and it's it's ready. (laughs) I I like his character. He's only got really two big scenes. The guy who runs the weaponry, played by Lou Erz. I would say he has three. All right, okay. This scene, the scene when the apes overrun him, and then the final scene. And then his final one, yeah, where he he wants to retire, yeah. And I love his questioning, and Virgil's answers are brilliantly philosophical. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He asks him, what does he want the gun for, for good or evil or something? And Virgil replies, they are neither good nor evil. It is the purpose to which you put them to, that he's either good or evil. And that's when he lets him in. He's like, (laughs) all right, excellent answer. Come on in. (laughs) Like you say, I like Paul Williams' performance in this thing. He just, he, he's just got this wry delivery on everything he says. Where, where, where sometimes it seems like he's rambling, but then you know, you know, he's the smartest guy in the room at all times. Mm. But he's very unassuming in his quiet, in his smartest guy in the room. He's not pay attention to me. I am the one who knows what's doing. He's very quiet, and he just he says his words very. He picks them very carefully what he says even though he talks a lot. I, I loved him. I thought he was brilliant. Both of them doing the eight walk very well as yeah. they climb up the hill. 
Well, I mean, Roddy McDowell by this point had it down to a he's, science. He's got it down to an art, yeah. Whatever happened to Austin Stoker? He's in this. He's in Assault on Precinct 13. I can't think of anything. I think he was quite prevalent in the black exploitation movies in the 70s. But then I, I, don't, I don't recall seeing him in anything recently. He may not be alive anymore. Uh, he apparently is still alive. Good, 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 good. Uh, he's he's got some, he's got things on his resume. I'm just looking on his IMDb page right now. Right. He was he's there's a movie in pre-production called Dissension, and there's a movie in post-production called Shh. <laughs> Before that, he was in Machete Joe <laughs> in 2010. Right. right. Uh, then it looks like he is, he's got a little break here because then it was 2006. He was in something called Between the Lines. I'm looking to see if there's anything of any significance. He was in, yeah. in the Wild Thornber- Thornberry's TV show, as I guess he did some <laughs> voice acting. Yeah. Uh, TV show. Well, he, has, he, he does have a very deep, resonant voice, doesn't he? Yes. And, and it, looks, it looks like everything before that was mostly TV work. He was in Arliss. He was in Falcon Crest, Cagney and Lacey, Trapper John, Airwolf. That's maybe where I remember him from. I, love, I thought he's brilliant in Assault on Precinct 13. He, he was in an episode of uh, The Incredible Hulk. Oh, the, so he is, yes. Reverend Jack Williams. Yes, he is. And The Six Million Dollar Man. Right. Oh, there you go. He's touching on all the childhood elements then. That's probably where we, we have such fondness for him. He was in two episodes of Six Million Dollar Man. But it, it gives it gives two different parts. He must have played two different characters. Yeah, he played two different roles. This was more prevalent back then. Yeah, normally only a couple of episodes apart as well. Uh, this desolate landscape stuff. This is quite well done, on a low budget. It it certainly was believable to my, I guess, eleven year old mind or ten year old mind at the time. They, I did see when I did my little bit of research on this. I did see that there's a point uh, where the matte painting becomes very very clear, but I didn't I notice it-, it in my reviewing. Yeah, I think it was just the scene where they come over the, the horizon and they see the city. I think you're looking at that going, oh, that's quite a fuzzy map painting. It's not quite as good as the 60s Star Trek TV shows. But all this this underground stuff's great. Because doesn't he say here now that this was once 45th and 3rd or something? So this was the middle of New York, essentially. Yeah, he definitely gives a location. I don't remember exactly where. But he gives a New York location. It does not look like what I recall Manhattan being like. But that's, you know... <laughs> There's been a big war since then. Yeah. Well, I, again, that that's you know at some point between the ending of the fourth movie and the beginning of this one, there was a bomb that went off. Now there was an alternate ending to this one too. Uh, that when we get closer to the end, I'll uh, I'll talk about that I saw in the trivia notes, which I was unaware of. Right. Yeah, I didn't know there was an alternate cut of this one. I knew there's the extended version of the fourth one has since been released, hasn't it, with the original ending? But I've never seen it. I, yeah, I, in fact, I have the Blu-ray, and I have not seen the alternate ending on that yet. Right, I've, I've not got the Blu-rays. I've still got the old DVDs, so I wouldn't mind. You'll have to let us know what that ending is. Yeah, apparently, like I said, it's darker. Scott was talking about it. We we did our Back to the Bins episode the other night, and uh, oh. and he was talking about it and went into it a little bit, but I haven't got any first-hand experience. Now, in this one, the basically, the chief villain is uh, Governor Culp, who was an assistant to Governor Brecht in, well, one of the assistants to Governor Brecht in the fourth movie. Uh, mm. They wanted Brecht back to be the villain, but 
again, uh, it sounded like he was unavailable at the time. And they, you know, they were on a, not only on a, sh- on a shoestring budget, but on a, on a very tight schedule. So I guess they couldn't wait for him. Right. And the girl with him is France Noyan, who was Elan of Troyes. Another Star Trek connection. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, one of one of his prime uh, assistants in this is Mendez, and in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, there's another character named Mendez who is supposed to be his great 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 grandchild. Right. So these are the descendants of the bomb worshippers. Are they the descendants of the bomb worshippers in the second film? Are the descendants of these people? Yeah, I guess these are the right. ancestors of the bomb. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> But, and well, you know what? I'm going to just get into it because they don't do it anyway. But that's apparently uh, that was the alternate ending. And this was at some point, Culp ordered they have a bomb, they have the bomb, and Culp ordered it to be uh, detonated. That's Mendez right there who's talking right. to him. And he ordered Mendez to set off the bomb, and Mendez didn't and instead started the worshiping. Right. And that's, you know, so that even would bring it more full circle. But I, I don't know exactly why they trashed that. Did they film that and cut it out, or was it never shot? I believe they never filmed it, but I could be mistaken on that. I, I'm not sure. I, I had never even heard that until uh, I was just looking up some trivia about the episode uh, in preparation for today. Hmm. I think the thing with – I heard Rob Kelly discussing this on um, – it was either Views for the Long Box or um, the Fire and Water podcast. But what he was saying was this is – typically 70s film series in its bleak and nihilistic and aimed at children <laughs> yeah, absolutely and when you think of, of the endings to every single one of these films and you're like the marketing for this was all at kids yet the films were so miserable and downbeat in their endings the second one ends with him blowing up planet earth well it's it's you know 1970 science fiction movies could just be called the dystopian era <laughs> the omega man yeah, that's and that's another one of my favorites. Another Charlie Hester so, or Soylent Green. Yep, another bleak as hell sci-fi movie from the seventies. Uh, yeah, a movie and a movie that ends on an absolute down note too. Yep, uh, uh, Charles Neston's seventy sci-fi output is very underrated, in my opinion. Well, that, that trilogy in particular, Soylent Green, The Omega Man, and the first and the first Planet of the Apes movie, mm-hmm. I, I could sit and watch those. Those could be in my in my evergreen collection that I'll just put on all the time. And then it has nothing to do with Charlton Heston, but the other one of that era, and it's not quite as negative uh, is for me, is Westworld. I love Westworld. And a boy and his dog. That never really got... That's a little bit later. I think that's around 78 or 79. That's kind of bleak ending, though. Yes. But that, for some reason, that never fell into my uh, my viewing uh, list or whatever. I, I think I watched it once when I was in college for like filmmaking purposes and that was it Hmm. it's just it is it is an interesting to just look at the difference in the tone between this and then the late 70s early 80s a lot of it's probably down to star wars but again i think that's why these hold up well I, i think before star wars there was a lot more emphasis in the general uh general movie making on story than there was on special effects and and 
that stuff. Uh, whereas after Star Wars, then the big budget science fiction film came into vogue and often they do it right, but often they do it wrong because they just think, Oh, if we have a lot of explosions and, and, and special effects, we're good enough. And it, yeah. Go no, go on. I was just going to say that the thing that's quite impressive about this now, when I was watching it yesterday is it's very measured in its pacing. It didn't feel long at 96 minutes. I was never bored in it. But it's building up very slowly to its climax and it's taking time to set out what it's talking about rather than just opening with an action scene and then a bit of plot exposition and another action scene. I like that. And it's a testament, I think, as kids that we weren't bored with these. No, even not, not in the very slightest. Measured in their story. No, even though they're very measured in their storytelling approaches, they're still quite interesting and fascinating. And the lighting, the lighting in this scene is brilliant. Yeah, this that, that scene showing the basically the mutated people almost uh, to me is reminiscent of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and I, I think there's a lot of that going on in this movie, just connections to the old ones. I mean, the third and fourth one, they show clips from the beginning, and now they're going about to show another clip. Uh, but the uh, there's there's a lot of of the ape city and the uh, mutant community that that brings you back to the first and second movie as well. I'm sort of the the DP were the, the just then you got the shot with Virgil right in the foreground and Austin Stoker's character McDonald in the back and the lighting's brilliant and then they switch to the scene with the bad guys the mutants and the camera angle is the same the bad guy is at the forefront of the panel and his assistant is in the background and the shot is set up exactly the same way which I thought was a very interesting way visually of telling you that essentially the 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 same people wanting the same thing here's the one who's not for war and Aldo's not in this bit but I thought that was a very interesting visual way of telling the story that they're both in the same frame in the same positions mm-hmm. when they switch between the angles but the the dark camera work here is brilliant so the makeup looks much better here as well because of the lower lighting oh absolutely the harsh lighting uh, in the daylight scenes isn't, isn't doing anybody a favour Mm. I love Virgil's time travel theory here. I, I, I remember. I wish. I wish I had subtitles on this. I don't have subtitles on this copy that we're watching. But he, he talks. It, it's, his theory of time travel didn't make sense. Well, neither Isn't did, he, neither did has, has lines in the third movie. It's like he says that you can send a message to yourself in London from New York, and if you travel from New York to London at the speed of light, you can answer the message from yourself and decide to never send it. And then, but then you're like, well, then he had no reason to travel because he never sent the message. <laughs> he doesn't see. He doesn't seem to. He's the premise of this seems to be that you can change time. Oh. Virgil seems to be coming from the position that you can alter the future when you know about the future, whereas the film itself, particularly that very final scene, seems to imply that time is cannot be changed. Time is going to do what it's going to do. And no matter what we do here, Charlton Heston is ultimately going to blow the planet up in the future. I don't, I don't know about that. Oh, go on. Well, because the movie ends in 2670 with the lawgiver giving his speech and the humans and apes living together at that point. Yeah. And so I, they're saying I, I, you can change time. So was that a result of the messing around in time here that they have changed the future? Because my reading of the ending was with the tear was that it's all going to end badly no matter what they do. See, I, I never quite understood the reason for the tear. So see, I, that was my reading of the tear. 
Okay. Which is interesting that it wasn't yours. This is quite fast. But this is the interesting thing with, with time travel stories, isn't it? We can get into discussions about that. But yeah. that was my interpretation of that very final scene. It doesn't matter what we do. Ultimately, the planet's going to blow up. Even though it looks like we may have written, rewritten history, I don't think that we have. Because, I don't know. That was my interpretation of the tea when I watched it yesterday. I don't remember what I thought about it as a kid. <laughs> As, as a kid, I didn't understand the tear, and I was actually trying to think about the tear, and I was actually looking to see if I could find something where there was any sort of definitive take on what that meant, and I, and I couldn't find anything. But, uh, you know, I was taking it as, okay, we're going, whatever it is, five, six hundred years in the future, and humans and, and apes are living in somewhat in harmony at the very end. So, therefore, uh, they did change the future, and at the point where they changed the future, it would have been really at the moment at the stockade when the apes and the humans have their little confrontation at the very end of the movie and Caesar then says we have to treat them as equals mm. and that that would be the moment where the future changes right there. So your interpretation of the tear though far seems to be less bleak than mine that it's actually a tear of joy that they succeeded in what they set out to do. Yeah, and I'm not a big tear of joy guy, so I I, <laughs> I, I never really thought about it that way. But uh, but I, I, like I said, I could never understand really the reasoning for the tear because I didn't see it as bleak at that point. I thought they were trying to present a positive message right. at the end. All right, see, so we both came at it from completely different angles. That's quite interesting. Maybe it just says that you're a much more optimistic person than I am. I do. You know, just, despite all, I do like happy endings to my stories. <laughs> Whereas I think humanity is ultimately going to wipe itself out. So there you go. You, th you think this could actually be a historical document? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> this has fell through a time warp and this is actually future history. <laughs> These people are bad shots. Yes, God, they're terrible. They There's just a, had them point blank and didn't. Yeah, I was one. just going to say there was a scene here, but it was that exact scene where they're running up the stairs right in front of them. You don't have to be an expert marksman in that confined space to hit them and they miss. Yeah, yeah. like the stormtroopers. You're just trying to hit one of them. Yeah, maybe the the radiation has made their eyesight bad. I don't know. I do. I again, I like. I kind of like this dystopian set and all it is is basically like a uh you know a, a cellar you know electric cellar or something uh yeah they could have filmed it in the boiler room at uh, 20th century fox couldn't they for all we know now they do i mean they did again they were on the cheap so i think they reused areas they make some they're, they're making themselves look like they're running through this huge huge area but i'm sure it's you know much much smaller and they're just using the camera to its best effect to make it look bigger yeah, change camera angles, change the lighting. It probably looks like they're in a completely different room when they're not. Oh, well done. It's Shoot a madhouse. <laughs> That's a nice parallel to the first film, isn't it? Yeah. Good callback, Paul. I didn't spot that yesterday. I didn't either. I just thought of it now. <laughs> no, that, but it works, doesn't it? I, I, I kind of, I, I mean... If you want to look at it from the positive point of view, I kind of like the fact that the shooting guns, it makes no difference. And ultimately, a hose is the weapon that helps them. Mm. Oh, and there they go missing again with the shots. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, you know, like I, we were saying, for, for all the uh, verbal abuse this movie gets, I sit here watching it and it brings a smile to my face. I love this movie. 
I watched it yesterday, and you can pick holes with it if you want to, but I was entertained for 96 minutes, which is essentially what I want from my films. It made me want to go back and watch the previous four. As well you should. Yeah, because I even dig out the TV series and give it another go. Now, are you uh, lined up for uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes? Yes, yes, because I thought Rise of the Planet of the Apes was exceptionally good. I, I did too. And and the, the trailer for the new one looks really good as well. Not watched it. I don't watch trailers for films I know I'm going to see. So I'm well, not what I like about it is it doesn't, there's really no spoilers in the trailer, but I'm, I won't go through what it shows, but uh, there, there really aren't any spoilers. And I've been seeing, you know, all these superhero movies with my kids and we were at uh, Days of Future Past and they had the trailer for it at the beginning. And uh, my son totally on board we're gonna go see dawn my, my my daughter looked at it she says no i think it's gonna be scary i don't want to go see it oh see anya loves these things she sat watching most of this with me yesterday uh, i get the feeling that if i met if i meet anya face to face at some point i'm gonna like her very much yeah she she sat and watched all of this with me and she'll watch all the superman with me and she's a big doctor who fan even though she don't remember any of it later so she's not one of those who a fan who remembers every minute detail, but she will sit and watch it. And she does. She likes being a little bit scared. She gets that from her mum. Her mum likes cheesy horror films as well. Yeah, that's. I, I like being a little scared. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't like the movies that that keep me up at night. Doesn't happen too often, but I don't like it. Right. He, he's got an aide here who is advocating not war. Can we not just live with them in peace? Yeah, they left. Let's let's let it go. And he's no. Well, his motivation almost seems okay to me because I'm interpreting his stance as he thinks Caesar came as an aggressive move, and he thinks that if they don't do something about it, if they don't strike first now, they're gonna, you know Caesar's going to come and just take them out. That this was a scouting mission to to kill them off. Yeah. No, that's a valid reading of it, and it's so it, it gives a layer of complexity to the bad guys, essentially. Yeah, it doesn't just make him, you know, just want to go to Ape City to kill them for the heck of it. Mm. He didn't invade their territory; they invaded his. Yeah, exactly. So it it does give him a reasonable motivation. The fact that he's got crazy eyes doesn't sell him as a, a peaceful man, though, does it? No, no, not at all. <laughs> No, well, you know, as it goes on, not only do you see him as, you know, violent, but almost a little sadistic. Mm. So he may have the right motivation as far as, okay, we need to protect ourselves, but he doesn't really take the right course of action with that. I mean, I think that the right course of action probably would have been to send out your own scouting mission just to see what the apes are doing. Yeah, and arm yourself, but if they're willing to talk, then have a parlay. I love I love Aldo because you Aldo with his sword all the time. You do get the impression Aldo's he's managed to work people up into a lather based on fear, which again is a subtext that works just as well now as it did then. And Caesar puts him down verbally. And Austin Stoker did a wonderful little bit there, McDonald just smiling at the way Caesar handled Aldo. Mm. This that young, this young boy looks like uh, young Luke Skywalker. He does. He looks better than Hayden Christensen. <laughs> I don't know if this comes off as believable. That she actually thinks he's hurt. 
No, I, I didn't get that either. And But also it's playing with the idea that they're not allowed to say no to them, but they're allowed to shoot and kill them. Well, I, I say I take it as she's confused because they don't promote violent games. Playing pretend guns is probably against what they're trying to push as their culture. Right. So she's almost confused by what he's doing. And that's that would be that's Natalie Trundy, who, uh, along with Roddy McDowell, is the only person who was in four of the five movies. Right. Who was she in the others? Yes, she she the others. Uh, well, in the in the second and third one, the second one she played a mutant. The third one she played one of the uh, two scientists who interact with uh, Cornelius and Zira, and in the third and fourth one she plays Lisa. Right. So she wasn't in the first. It does miss Zira. Yeah, it does. It does. It, there was just something about her. She was wonderful, particularly in Escape. Yes. What's her name? What's the actress's name? Linda. Kim, Kim Hunter. Kim Hunter. Linda's Nova, isn't it? Yeah, Linda yeah, Hamilton. Kim, Kim. Kim was. Kim Hunter was brilliant. Yeah. Now she was famous for a streetcar named Desire, I believe. It was nice seeing her in the clip in the Mutant City. Even if it was only a call back, it was nice seeing her again. And Roddy McDowell played it very well as my mother. Whereas when he was in the film, it would have been his wife. Mm-hmm. But he did a good job with it, and it was it was a nice scene. Roddy McDowell's a good actor, isn't he? He really he's an underrated actor. Now, I mean, he's he was a child actor, so he was in this his whole life. And I, I think he developed a certain subtlety to his delivery that maybe escaped some people. I don't know. I mean, I, I also love him as uh, the from uh, Fright Night. Yes, he's brilliant in Fright Night. I don't think I've ever seen anything with Roddy McDowell in where he wasn't good. There's I, I a brilliant episode of Quantum Leap where Sam changes history. And so Al never existed. And his partner is Roddy McDowell instead of um, Dean Stockwell. Oh, I don't remember that one. I haven't seen every Quantum Leap, but I, I really like that show. Here we go. It's a little... See, now, I don't know if this fits Caesar's character to have a kind of a council where he's sitting in a throne. Yeah, above everybody else. Because he doesn't really seem like he judges himself in that position. Yeah, and he I, almost I, seems I, to wear the burden of leadership that that it's you know he sees it as his responsibility not as something he wears with pride mm. so i i don't th- i don't think he would set himself apart from the people i think he would speak among the people he would be down with them and talking to them but it does give us the nice scene later on where aldo takes the throne yes where aldo is very definitely someone who would position himself like that absolutely Here we see the four men human characters. And see, working the people up into a frenzy, but only the gorillas are really joining in with them. Nobody else. Because we're not given a voice, which goes to what you were saying earlier on, that all the the apes have done is just turn civilization around. So at this point, you can argue, are they any better than we were? Yeah, well, like like you said, it's it's yeah. Yes, he's a benevolent slave master, but he is still a slave master. Mm. And at some point, humanity would rebel against this. Or at it's, some point, you'd have a a 
you know, somewhere in the line of succession, you'd have somebody who wasn't as benevolent, and that would mm. cause the rebellion. Yeah. Older. Yeah, exactly. It, see, we're finding an awful lot of stuff in this for a film that is maligned. Well, I don't think they mailed in the script. No. I think they may have been a little bit rushed on it. But I think well, I think Paul, that they said let's do our best, and they I think they really gave it a, a real effort. I think Paul did it. Paul Dane, who wrote I don't know if he wrote two, three, and four, but he certainly wrote three and four. Didn't he die in the pre-production of this? So the script had to be given to other people, or was it taken off him because he was ill? There was something that he couldn't finish the script. I don't and know. I think if he had probably finished it, maybe there would have been more ties to the two that he wrote. Oh, that's that's an interesting perspective. I, I was unaware of that. I don't know if it was taken off him or if he wasn't well. I know he died not long after the fifth one. So whether or not that was a reason for him not finishing the script, I don't know. But there was a, I've read somewhere there was a reason he didn't finish it. Now back to Mendez, who's looking. There's the bomb. Yep. So he's already saying that, you know, if the fight doesn't go well for us, I'm just going to launch the bomb. There we go. Yeah, and in, this, uh, in the trivia section that I read, basically you see the, the doors that open, the fins at the bottom of it would never fit through that door. <laughs> so, so you would not be able to launch this, this bomb. Oh, now you've pointed that out to me. I can't not see it. <laughs> but you're absolutely right, yeah. Oh, somebody on the production team fell down on the job there, didn't they? I, I love the symbols on it, the Alpha and the Omega. Mm. Oh, yeah, just behind Franz Noyan's head. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now Lisa giving him counsel. Because mm, heavy lies the head that wears the crown, as Caesar is finding out. Yeah, well, again, like, he, he didn't... He didn't relish the leadership role. He did it as a responsibility. Yeah, he didn't want it. It's not something he coveted. He's led his people to freedom, but you do get the distinct impression now that because he did that, his people now look to him for leadership and guidance, and he'd be quite happy to just retire somewhere with his family and live in a hut somewhere and grow nuts and berries. And now you see you see these close-ups on him, or somewhat close-ups. You, could, you see the way he kind of has his eyes... Uh, he's he's making himself look weary, mm. which again I think you know with all that makeup and everything to be able to express things and show things you know it it just shows a level of acting that that's got to be really difficult with all this makeup. Mm. The, they don't get the credit, or certainly Roddy McDowell doesn't get the credit he deserves for because he's in a seventies low budget sci-fi film. But I think he's the heart of the films. It's it's a shame he couldn't be in the second one, really, isn't it? Never mind. Well, the the actor in there, uh, David, whatever, uh, <laughs> he he did do a yeoman like job of doing a Roddy McDowell imitation, and I I suspect that they uh, cut back on the part a little bit too. Mm. Especially seeing as when they made that second one, they can't have known Roddy McDowell was coming back for the third one. 
I, I don't think they knew there was going to be a third one. Well, no, because they blew the planet up. <laughs> wasn't exactly. That, wasn't that one of the reasons Charlton Eston signed up? They can't do anymore. We blew up planet Earth. <laughs> well, I, 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 I mean, I understand that it was mandatory that his character died during the movie. Yeah. And then so he had he had such a, a limited part in it, too. I mean, I think he only had a couple of days of shooting. Where did they get all their uh, gasoline from? Good point. That's, you know, well, I mean, I get, I guess that there wouldn't be that much opportunity to actually have used it. Although you, you would use it for, to, to get your power. Hmm. Well, maybe they have a couple of tanks somewhere that we just don't see. Now that shot, the background almost looks like the buildings from Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which is kind of a nice callback too. And young Cornelius did a bad job of corralling his uh, squirrel. <laughs> Always keep your pets locked up. And this time it will prove to be an important mistake. Yeah, well, how, this is the, the turning point for the film, isn't it? Yeah. How, how old would you say he's supposed to be? 12 or 13. Yeah, I'd say it's probably about right. I like his, uh, his all-in-one nightdress that he's wearing, <laughs> his underwear. Yeah, it's, you know, I guess they, uh, they must have raided some stores because it doesn't seem like they have the uh, ability to produce clothing like that at this point. No. Yet they did manage to make their, uh, their traditional ape tunics. <laughs> they raided the fox stores after the bomb went off i guess you know they they did produce all these i, I you know i guess they have seen they must have a seamstress team because they they all do have the same outfit i mean they got had to be produced somewhere the monkey movements here are very well done i presume that this is a stunt double and not the the child actor yeah i'm, I'm wondering if this is an adult and just filmed in a way to try and make him look smaller Mm. Or it may be just be it may be a small gymnast because some of those gymnasts aren't very big or bulky. It's like Olga Corbett in an ape costume. Yeah, very possibly <laughs> someone from Cirque du Soleil. Aldo's having his parlay with his people at this point to bring about revolution and overthrow Caesar. I did like that they his people don't seem to be down with the idea when he actually says, and then we take out Caesar. Mm. So even his own followers adhere to the ape must not kill ape rule. But none of, them, even, none of them are strong-willed enough to, yeah, to go against confront him, him or, to, or to tell him that's wrong. Because this is where he goes too far. Young Cornelius sees them, and then Aldo hacks at the branch that he stood on and he falls to. See, originally I thought they killed him straight away, but he, he has a deathbed confessional, doesn't he? Yes, and uh, at, at 10 years old I found that that, uh, that that death scene to be very touching. Yeah, well, watching it yesterday with, with Anya, and I'm like, this, you know, the, we've said the marketing and stuff was aimed at children. They just killed a child in this film. That's pretty bleak stuff. Hmm. I mean, just because it's just not as in-your-face as Assault on Precinct 13 did it, they still do it. And Assault on Precinct 13 was not marketed to children. No, there is that. 
So this, I can imagine this will have hit home for a lot of kids that were watching it and a lot of parents. That although he takes the step here from being a nuisance and a loud mouth and an annoyance to genuine villainy in this moment. And so now he's a, cutting the branch that the kid isn't on. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, continuity wasn't what what it was <laughs> nowadays. Well, they they make a mistake like that later uh, during the confrontation as well, which I'll point out when we get to that. Oh, there we go. He leaned on the branch and then fell. Just, so if he'd stayed on the branch that he was on, he'd have been okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the moral of this story: don't change branches. <laughs> All right, let's go quick, quick, quick. Now, I mean, you would think you'd see that there was a campfire there. You'd know something yeah. was going on. It, you, you, you wouldn't just take it as, oh, he was just out and he fell. It takes McDonald's to actually point out that the campfire was there. And, and there's an awful lot of them to disappear so quickly and so silently. But, you know, that map painting there. Yeah. It's alright, and it's not the best, but it doesn't suck. This it's is a, very Max. Yes. Yes, absolutely. This is when I first saw Mad Max, this is exactly what I thought of. Mm. All right, hold on a second. I'll be back in a second. I've got to let the cat out. It won't leave me alone otherwise. Alright, I'll just try and keep it going. So they they did show a spot here where uh one of the uh, mutants had to stop his car and raise his hood, so that that goes a little bit with some uh, some 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 realistic touch because it shows that the cars weren't totally in uh, you know maintained and in full repair that they did have to do some work to keep going. Uh, here we go. Here's McDonald checking the fire and seeing that it had been lit. Of course, I would think Sorry about that. that's okay. I was just uh, rambling Stop on to keep time. it going. <laughs> He won't leave me alone if I don't let him out, and he keeps meowing at me. Yeah, and it's it's McDonald that puts it all together. But kind of, you know, doesn't doesn't take the detective work to the next step. No, it's Virgil who does that, isn't it? Yes. Didn't they actually cut the branch off? No, it, it just kind of fell down. I don't think it. I I don't think it totally broke off. Right. Yeah, so, so your cat is uh, a kindred spirit to uh, Alvin Robinson, I guess. <laughs> yeah. He was wrapping himself around my legs and meowing, and he just wouldn't stop until I let him out. So he's gone now. We won't see him for the rest of the day. And everybody's just kind of sitting vigil, waiting to see what's going to happen, I guess. Well, look, the interesting thing, it begs the question, they see, do they have any doctors? Or would yeah. they have vets? Well, unless there's a somebody who had any kind of medical training in the human community, or somebody who's taken the uh, you know the old texts and adopted their uh, you know their, their studies, they'd be starting from the beginning. So you know they, you might have uh, almost the old type time concepts of you know put a few leeches on him and <laughs> we'll go <laughs> see you in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> put some maggots in the wound and see what happens. 
Because the implication here is she's at least some kind of nurse. Yeah, but it, it, it could be that she isn't, but she just has, you know, as much knowledge as anybody in the community. Right. And you, you know, you, you wonder what, <laughs> I don't know, I, I wonder, maybe I, you know, you don't need an answer to the question, but I wonder what kind, like what kind of injury he sustained. Is it a head injury? Is it, you know, what, what is it that's basically ultimately going to be fatal? Mm. Considering he didn't fall from that high of a branch, really. But, you know, people have fallen from less and broke major organs or suffered internal bleeding or something. Yeah, I, I guess that would probably be the the easiest explanation for what happens is that he's got some sort of internal bleeding that's ultimately going to cause him, you know, cause his organs to drown yeah. or something. That in this society, they just don't have the technological wherewithal to do anything about. So now we're seeing the, the, the march on the ape community and uh, the, the some of the mutants are just falling by the wayside because I, I guess, it's, I, I don't know why they'd fall. I mean, the three apes were able to make the trip pretty easily. <laughs> Virgil does say something about the exposure to radiation and if you stay a particular length of time, which always seems a bit woolly for me. Like you can stay for 28 minutes, but not 32 minutes. Well, that's like the old comic book logic where they say, oh, you know, here's this pill that you can breathe air underwater for exactly one hour. And you could actually <laughs> have like a clock that times it down. Yeah. And they measured out that it's exactly that. <laughs> one hour, one minute, and suddenly you drown. Yeah, exactly. So now, okay, watch this scene. See where the cannon is facing? Yep. Okay, and now see which way Culp is looking? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, now fire the cannon. In the complete opposite direction. <laughs> and you're going to hit where he's looking. <laughs> How does that happen? <laughs> All right, because if you look at it, the cannon's pointed in the right direction. So what was he looking at? Yeah, he was looking in the wrong direction. <laughs> like Razor the Lost Ark. They're digging in the wrong place. <laughs> they have good aim with that cannon, though. A lot better they than do. they do with, with the guns. Yeah, the terrible shots with the guns. <laughs> oh, but one has survived. So always check that your opponent's dead. It's the comic book thing. If you don't see the bodies and don't mm-hmm. check the bodies, then they're not dead. I remember when this movie was out, I have no idea like what it was, but some sort of school magazine, you know, like one of those black and white 25 page things that they'd hand out to the classrooms. Mm. I think I was in fifth grade at the time and they had a, uh, a, a, like a, it, they had it as a, as like a play for like five pages. And I, I remember doing this in the classroom that, you know, everybody would have a part and you'd do the, uh, in, in English class. <laughs> You did Planet of the Apes. We did Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Excellent. I wish I still had that that handout. <laughs> you should reenact it on the show. Yeah. <laughs> if you, I had the handout, and, I would consider it. You and Bill. Well, you know, there were rumors at one time that they were going to remake Planet of the Apes well before the Tim Burton one and that it was going to star Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know that Arnie could put... I mean, Charlton Heston's not really every man, is he? No. No, he's what but, every man wants to be, though. Yeah, but at Arnie, you're even... Because that's my my downfall with Total Recall. That you never buy that Arnie's a normal bloke. 
Yeah. Here they come rounding up all the humans, parallels to World War this, II. This poor guy, his job is to collect sticks. Yeah, that's his job description. Collect sticks. We live in a jungle, your job is to collect the sticks. I presume it's firewood. I guess. <laughs> they were all perfectly rounded sticks, though. Yes, they really were. Somebody had sanded them down for him. You know, so he didn't get a splinter. The apes have health and safety at work law. Yeah, the ape version of OSHA. <laughs> oh, and Aldo is taking over why Caesar is mourning his son. That's a good shot. That is. That's an excellent shot. And and the, the makeup on Aldo is not bad. No, the makeup on Aldo is very good. He's significantly different to the ones behind him as well. If you look, it's like they've put a lot of work into him because he's going to get a lot of face time. And it does seem like his proth- his prosthetics prosthetics sorry are different to the orangutans. Oh yeah, yeah, it's an excellent makeup job on Aldo. It really is. And I was unfamiliar with Claude Aikens until this movie. But I remember, like afterwards, somebody tell me, "Oh no, he's been around forever. He's you know famous actor." This was before. Uh, what was his TV series? Moving on. I don't think I've ever seen that. Like it, like it was like a trucker show. All right, <laughs> PJ and the Burr. Only without mean- the bear. <laughs> Meanwhile, back with Farah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, it, it's it shows that that they had poor protection for their armory. Really doesn't take too much for them to break in. Well, maybe it's like you say. Maybe they never thought with the ape must not raise sword against ape law. Maybe they didn't think anyone would ever break in. Yeah, I, I think Caesar. That's that's probably the biggest problem. Is Caesar underestimated Aldo and his ability to work the masses into a frenzy. Now, I think that's an interesting... This could be completely wrong, for which I apologise if it is, but I'm sure Lou Erz was a pacifist. I don't want to say for World War II or maybe Vietnam, a conscientious objector. So actually casting him as the guy in charge of the weaponry is actually quite a shrewd piece of casting. Oh, that's interesting. That I was on, I didn't know that. See, even in stuff like that, if, if I'm remembering that correctly... That's a, a level of subtext to the film that I don't think it's given credit for. No, I, I don't think this movie is given credit for a lot. <laughs> I think it's it's just one of these ones that, that people have just dismissed out of hand. Which is a shame. I got a lot of good out of this when I was watching it yesterday. Thank you for inviting me <laughs> to ah. be your supply teacher. And everybody, the A-list podcasters didn't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, they would have rejected me anyway. I had to to find somebody who who was willing to put up with me. No, 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 I love talking to you, you know that. Come on, Virgil, put it all together. Take your time there, Virgil, it's okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's like McDonald has got all the clues, but he's not taking that final step to piecing it all together, so it's left to Virgil to sort it all out. Which is a little surprising, because as... as wise as Virgil is supposed to be, McDonald's is supposed to be pretty shrewd too. You would think he would have put it together on his own. Mm. See, I I thought that was where it was going to go, that he was going to put it together and go to Virgil with it. Because Virgil is the reasonable one. Even Caesar 
may not necessarily believe that Aldo would go this far, but hearing it from Virgil. But they do stretch it out a bit. The, the boy, Cornelius' deathbed confession. Caesar does keep saying to him, who? Who did this? And he keeps answering different questions mm-hmm. just to keep the drama going a little bit more. Yeah, but and clearly Cornelius is distracted now. I mean, Caesar is distracted, rather. Yeah, which gives Aldo the chance to strike. This is what Aldo's been waiting for. The fact that it's coinciding with a human invasion is just fortuitous for Aldo. He probably would have taken this opportunity anywhere. I like the way he's uh, just kind of making his mouth go up and down in an ape-like way, even though his prosthetic looks poor. Mm. Again, he's using, he's really using his eyes to to convey a lot. Come on, Cornelius, tell him. Yeah, it's Aldo, come on. <laughs> Just say it was Aldo. It's not that difficult. <laughs> really? Again, I, I, I just think they did a poor job on the coloration between the prosthetic and his actual skin here. Yeah, it, it does look completely different, doesn't it? It makes See, it a little too make- obvious. Is the makeup around the eyes just makeup? There's no prosthetic around the eyes. Is it all the mouthpiece and the nose and then the brow? Yeah, I think that's it. And then the hair. Yeah. I don't think along the cheeks, I think that's... Well, on him at least. On her, I think there was a little prosthetic on the cheeks. I don't think there's any on his. Yeah, he just just looks like... Yeah, he's just got makeup and then it's the mouth, the nose, and the brow is one appliance, doesn't it? Now, I guess the more makeup you put on him the harder it is for him to express emotion. Because he's the actor that's carrying the film on an emotional point of view. So Yeah, so it's a, it's a tight line that they have to go on that, you know, to try and you know, give him the ability to convey the emotion, but on the other hand, make him look like a chimpanzee. And then we get the yellow school buses that don't mean anything over here, but scared the crap out of me because of the Freddy Krueger films. <laughs> oh, you don't, you don't have the yellow school buses? No, we don't have them. We just... No, we just have regular buses, but they just have school service on the front. But uh, the, I always call them Freddy buses. Cause I, think, <laughs> is it, I, I forget which Nightmare on Elm Street film it is, because they all kind of blur into one after a while. But there's a scene where he guts people on a, a yellow school bus. I don't even recall. I know I saw the first three, but the first one is the only one that really stood out to me. Here we go. Love that shot. Caesar alone in the middle of the frame, but the frame is filled up by the house. And in the background, his wife mourning the loss of her son is a lovely. And he's got his back to them. Yeah, the camera. Because he's all alone. Yeah. Camera angle on that shot's brilliant. That is an awful small stockade for all those people. (laughs) Rounding them all up and putting them in a camp. And how did they have the stockade set? You, know, you would think you'd have to build that, right? I mean, they weren't kept there normally. No, you'd think that old, Aldo's had this prepared for a while and he's been secretly building it. Go get me the pointed sticks. <laughs> That's what the bloke was collecting. <laughs> well, they took all the sticks and put points on them. Yeah, shaved, shaved them off, put points on them, built a, a concentration camp. I, I, I always thought that it might have been a good touch 
to have them losing the battle and then somehow have the humans released from the stockade and have them combined with the apes be enough to win the battle for them and that like that be the thing to realize they have to work together yeah that the humans help them fight the mutants that would have been a good direction to go in actually yeah now this this we do get a kind of some of the cheapness of the movie here because they use some some of the footage gets reused and reused and reused of the explosions. I think there's one particular tree that explodes like five times. <laughs> yeah, judged by today's standards, this is perhaps not the most dynamic final battle scene that you're ever going to see. Well, at, the, at the time, it seemed good to me. Well, that's what. But there's something good about that—that that this is a final battle that is fought by people in a very small area. It's not buildings falling over and fighting alien invaders. It's a very small, confined battle. It's no less dangerous, certainly for the people involved in it. And it's, but it's easy to follow as well, which I sometimes think a lot of the the final battles in films nowadays, they make them too too complicated to follow. Well, you know, the, in the current directorial style, not only do they make them too complicated, but they do the extreme close-ups. I think that's the tree we see go over and over. Uh, they, they do extreme close-ups, which and they really have neglected very often the establishing shots, so you lose mm. total track of where, where you are and what's going on. Whereas in this, they're doing a very good job of mixing up the wide shots with the close-ups. There's a couple of things where they just launched um, a grenade and it hit, and then the two people around the grenade threw themselves after it had blown up. <laughs> that wasn't particularly well choreographed. And, and you got to think, if they had more money, they would have said, no, we're redoing this till we get it right. But maybe yeah. with the way it was, you know, they were on a tight schedule, and it was like, good enough, let's go, keep going. But no, you're always able to follow the action. I mean, more impressive as well, given that you're following a bunch of actors in prosthetics, that we never go in, who's that then? Well, it's Virgil. You know it's Virgil. You know that's Cornelius, um, Caesar. I keep doing the same thing you do as well. Uh, that's, it's, it's a, to me, that's an easy mistake to make. Yeah, because he's Cornelius for most of them. And they, they are pretty organized, considering they weren't, expecting to have a, a war you know, they've all come together quite well I've seen a couple of those explosions oh that was, there's some good explosions there that seem quite close to the actors or the stuntmen yeah, well, well, the, uh... that's the same one that we just saw but from a different <laughs> angle there you go, that's exactly right Well, a lot of movies use that technique, just film the same explosion from different angles and, and use it. I'm, I'm going to point this out way early, uh, just because I want you to, if you're not aware of it, I want you to see it when it happens. But are you are you familiar with the part when, uh, when Roddy McDowell's mouthpiece starts to fall off? No. <laughs> okay. I mean, we're still, ways, we're still a ways away from it, but right. I, don't, I don't have to point it out to you because it's going to be very obvious. The point when he gets up and says the famous line, now fight like apes. Oh, right. Watch the close-up of his face. They blur it out so that you can't see his mouthpiece fell off. <laughs> and like I said, I would wait until the scene came up, but I'm afraid that we'll be in the middle of some other conversation <laughs> and that I won't be able to point it out in time for you to see it when it happens. Oh, there is some good stunt work in this fight, though. 
for all of the low budget, the stuntmen are still throwing their all into chucking themselves around and getting blown. There you go. Is that again? Yeah, you're yep. right. That's I think that's the third time. Up. There's a fourth time. <laughs> Maybe the trees are all just the same tree. <laughs> yeah, and, and the explosion hits in the exact same spot exactly on the tree the each time. Way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, yeah, like you say, it's slow. There and again! again. <laughs> It is slow by today's standards, but you don't have any problem following it. And it's still moderately exciting that this is happening to mostly people that you're interested in. Where's Older while this is going on? Yeah, they you don't, they don't specifically the... show him. I mean, you see gorillas, it's, you just got to assume he's in the middle of the battle somewhere. You'd think he'd be at the forefront of the action. This is what he's wanted for the entire film. That's really Paul Williams near that explosion. That was pretty impressive. That looked like genuine fear on his face. You wonder, you wonder how Caesar even had time to implement the plan, explain it to everybody what to do, and have them go ahead and do it in time, you know? Maybe they, they had the contingency set up, I don't know. They're doing very well, though, aren't they? Oh, now they're retreating. The advancing is... And they again! again. <laughs> dead ape at the forefront though just like the dead ewok in return of the jedi there's a few more there were a few more bodies that they just walked past oh i i you know i think the use of smoke helps mm-hmm. to, to helps raise, raise the tension raise the, the feeling that that this is really a devastating battle uh and and just you know covers up the lack of budget to a great extent. I I think they did a, a perfectly fine job here with what they had. No, it's not as is that the same tree again? I think it was. I think, I think it was just another angle. Angle, yeah, but yeah, same one. It's like set up four cameras on that tree because we're going to use it over and over again. This this explosion cost us a lot of money. <laughs> if we blow up one more tree. We got to get rid of uh, Roddy McDowell and get the guy from uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes to come in. Yeah. <laughs> the budget won't allow for that. And Lisa refuses to leave the side of Cornelius. Even Has he died at this point? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's, uh, yeah, he died when Caesar yes, was there. Yes, he did, yeah. That's the, that's the problem with watching it with no volume. Yeah, even though I only watched it yesterday. Oh, oh! Look at all those dead apes. Or, very few dead humans. Are they? <laughs> uh, very few dead humans around. See, the, the flaw to this whole plan, uh, as I see it, is if I'm Culp, and well, I guess it, it banked on Culp's sadistic nature. Because if I'm Culp and I'm trying to take over here, and Caesar starts to uh, to rise. I'm taking my gun and I'm putting it right in, right, putting one right in his head. <laughs> I'm not taking a chance. Yeah, especially since they are very heavily armed. So that that's to me that's the flaw in Caesar's plan is it it depends on Culp not killing him right away. See, he could have come right over here, done. Yeah, pop a cap in his head. Is this the scene? Uh, well, 
when he when he yells out. So it's coming up at the end of this. This little exchange between the two. I think there's you have I think there's a quick explosion, then he gives the yell. And when he's giving yeah. the yell, that's when they they blot it out at the bottom or they blur it at the bottom to try and keep you from seeing it. And in fairness, I've seen this movie I don't know, twenty times and, and I never noticed it until I had read that piece of trivia. Hmm. It's a cunning ruse. Like you say, when you pointed out, I don't think it's perhaps the most practical one. Oh, extreme close-up. Yeah, she, well, she doesn't know what he's doing. She just sees him basically being taken captive by the entire mutant community here. I, I also like the seething Caesar. Yeah. Which he, you know, Brings totally out uh, in a few minutes. Here we go. Here's the explosion. And now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, to be fair, you can quite easily not notice that. Uh, like I said, I never did until I read it. But once I read it, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. You can't not see it. I will. I will notice that every time I watch this movie for the rest of my life. I like that they get them down and they're just kind of jumping up and down. <laughs> <laughs> Once they've got them. that's We've seen that. That scene was shown twice with the net yeah, on them. With the net falling on the people. And now they're beating them with the butts of the rifles. That's pretty nasty. They're not killing them, though. The apes aren't killing the humans. Well, and that's Caesar's plan. Caesar's letting them go. Yeah. Let them go. Caesar already wants at least some level of uh, ability to coexist. Even Virgil, ready to shoot. Yep, Virgil rolls his weapon there and he was ready to shoot. And look at him now. He's all sad. Yeah. (laughs) And now they look at the tree that blew up five times and mourn it. (laughs) (laughs) That that was my favorite tree. Of all the trees that are around us, his was the best. And they're not driving off particularly quickly. Oh, Aldo shows up now. All the work's been done. Yeah. Well, they don't get too far either. I mean, they're right outside the Ape City. Uh, as a kid, this was a little chilling. This whole, you know, surrounding them and circling them and just basically circling taking the them out. Bless you. Thank you. Cerebral with a commentary. You can't cut that out. <laughs> oh, that's a bit cold, isn't it? Yeah, oh, absolutely. He's just open fire in the bus. Aldo's not taking any prisoners. He's doing, I don't get, doing a little I don't dance get, there. Why would he blow up his own fruit stand? Yeah, why did he, he's got the gun in his hand. I don't know why he didn't just shoot it. Make sure everyone's dead. Including, where is he? Culp. Goodbye. And but I remember as a kid watching this and thinking that was almost justified. Wrongly so, but but that's what I thought. 
Like, because they attacked the ape community, it was okay for Aldo to do this. The devil's advocate, though, Aldo is attacking retreating people. Yeah. Oh, no. It's like I said, it was it was a wrong-headed thought at the time. But I, I think there's many, many reasons why he shouldn't be attacking. <laughs> yeah. And Caesar has let them go. So he's blatantly disregarding the orders of the senior in command. So again, if Caesar had done something about his insubordination earlier. Now you, you wonder though, you know, would they have just retreated, licked their wounds and then set off the bomb? Oh no, again. You, was you was Caesar making the right call? No, then you've got the thing though that Aldo has stopped them from going back and doing that. But does Aldo know that was their plan? No, we or has no he idea. just slaughtered them? No, yes. he, just, he just slaughtered them. He had no idea that was their plan. Yeah. But, but again, ultimately, this, he may have had the right solution. This is what would, there is a lot to this film that, again, I don't think a lot of people may, may want to acknowledge because that's a very interesting thing to discuss. Was Caesar right in his compassion or would his compassion have been their undoing? So was Aldo right to do what he did, which was disobey the orders of his superior and blatantly slaughter people who were retreating, but they had that bomb. It's interesting. It's an interesting yeah. moral quandary, isn't it? And I love the film doesn't answer it for you. So you're left to decide, well, which one of them was right? Would compassion have been their undoing? Was Aldo right to do what he did? I mean, I think the the lines between good and evil are very clear here. Caesar's good and Aldo is evil, but when you they, analyze it, but they present you the yeah, but they present you with the, the option that maybe being good isn't being the best leader, mm. or or making the best leader decisions, and ultimately, you know, he doesn't kill Aldo, but he has to get aggressive with Aldo and go after him. In order for things to be done right, his pacifist solution does not work. Yeah. And then I, I like Claude Aiken's act, acting here too, as he's mm. getting more and more nervous and more frightened because ultimately he's just a bully. Yeah, and he's, he's also not got the backing of his little fit people. They think he's gone too far in what he's done. When they find out here that he's killed Cornelius, look, they step away from him. They're not having anything to do with him. It's not just ape has killed ape. It's that he's killed a child. Which is exactly the point that Paul Williams brings out. Yeah. And look at look at Caesar working it over in his mind. You know, he's he's not rash. See, now here's where the gorillas are turning against him too. They mm. they backed off originally, but now they're turning against him on top of it. I remember this being kind of chilling, the whole ape is ape chant. And they, these, these extreme close-ups that they go to. That's a good line. I, I think one of the things I like about Aldo is the way they make his eyes look so red. Yeah, because none of the others have that, do they? Not to the extent he does. I wonder what, if that's like a reaction to the makeup or if they did give him eye drops or something. I think they may have given him eye drops to, just to make yeah. him more fierce. Now, what's, uh, what's the significance of the apes that he looked to, the gorillas that he looked to, raising their swords? Was that, that they, not just footage from earlier on? 
<laughs> I think it may have been, but but is that does that mean they're now considering him him an enemy because they're certainly not supporting him? I take it as that they've turned their back on him because of what he's done, and they're raising their swords to him. See, were they now going to take this step though of killing Alder? And once again, that's never. Yeah, it's never addressed. Never addressed because you don't know what Caesar would have done had he caught up with him. Would they have killed him? But then that's the whole ape does not kill ape thing. There's, I think there's an awful lot of stuff in this for you to mentally think about. And ultimately you bookend it with the fact that Aldo dies the same way that Cornelius did. Mm. That ultimately, you know, he, what he did causes himself to have the same downfall. No pun intended. Well, <laughs> no, there's a, there's a lot of wonderful little parallels in it and there's a lot of clever writing and there's a lot of subtext that you can get from it if you want to look for it which we've just spent 96 minutes doing. But the fact that we can actually sit here and find all of this in it, in this what is considered the lesser of the Ape series, is I think is a testament to the series as a whole and the, the perhaps undeserved reputation of this film generally. And I, I think what happens on this film is they look at the budget, they look at the special effects, and they dismiss it. Yeah, and they they don't look closer. They don't look to see the acting. They don't look to see the story. They don't look to see the the cinematography. Even you know, you pointed out some some wonderful shots that have yeah. been in this. I mean, there is some lazy, like just the the close up there of Aldo and his eyes. There were apes stood behind him, so it was obviously taken from earlier on in the film. But a lot of that's just budgetary, and a lot of it could be the director got to this scene and wanted a close-up of Aldo and didn't and hadn't filmed one. Now, now this, this shot of Aldo, the way he's shaking his head, the way he's he's just framed and everything, it looks like he's basically just totally lost. He's given up. He doesn't know what to do. He's like like a child who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Mm. There again. Yeah, it's like you say he's a bully. And then when everyone rounds on the bully, the bully becomes the coward. So he pulls his knife. pulls his knife and he's going to fight back. And Caesar's not armed. Caesar's not armed, but doesn't back down in the slightest. Well, you've also got the, the rage of a parent there as well. And goodbye, Elder. Is... <laughs> see, 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 the look on his face is that he, he didn't want that to happen. Did he, though? Because it looks like he may have been for pushing him. No, it's very it's ambiguous. It, it may be the way I read it is Aldo tried to take the swipe at him with the the sword. He grabbed his hand purely to prevent it. Again, a pacifist measure. Yeah, uh, and that in his zeal to try and strike Caesar, that's what made him lose his balance and ultimately fall. And then the close-up shot of, of Caesar on, on the branch looks to me like, I didn't want this. This is not what I wanted. But why was he chasing him up there in the first place, if that's, not for vengeance? And that's the ambiguity. I don't know. <laughs> I don't that, know ultimately what, he, what, not, what his goal was. They don't really make it clear. Is that not what's great about it, though? Yeah, oh no, there's a lot being, of that. We're not being spoon-fed what to think. And now the confrontation with the humans. And then and, and basically Caesar being the reasonable uh, ape that he is comes to quickly understand that 
he's just reversed the uh, the image. And it's Virgil though who provides him with the final information. And I love the way Virgil delivers that line. It's you may not want to hear this. I like the eye roll there too. Yeah, <laughs> that like it's not something you want to hear, but it's the truth. And as the leader of us, you now have to process this information and decide what to do with it. I love that they're just sat there playing checkers. <laughs> and and, and he, he comes in, they're ignoring him. They're not He's even... a bit campy, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, just a little. <laughs> And we've just got engrossed in the ending of the movie and we're not actually talking. Yeah, sorry. I, <laughs> that's the one problem with doing uh, commentaries is, you know, I do commentary. Uh, the commentaries I've done on movies that I'm interested in, needless to say. So therefore I get caught up in them a little bit and uh, yeah. I apologize well, if is, I don't talk enough. Again, this is going back to what you were on about earlier with the parallels in the storytelling. You've now essentially here got Caesar and um, and Virgil. Yes, but from the mutant point of view. Now I can't look at her without thinking Star Trek, though. <laughs> Elan of Troyes. Are you not more thinking about what she was wearing in that Star Trek episode? <laughs> That's on my mind, too. <laughs> oh, not wearing a Star Trek, maybe. I love McDonald. He's just so laid back and calm, isn't he? Yes. About the whole thing. Hands in pockets, very casual. Uh, let's build up our guns again. And put them away. Poor Macadamus. Wants to blow it up. Which is another interesting idea, isn't it? It would Is peace brought about by the disposal of your weapons? Or can you not do that because you need to be able to defend yourself should the situation arise? There is so much to chew on in this film. Yeah, I mean, that one to me is, I think, is easily answered, though. That's not a huge uh, thing, is that, okay, if you eliminate the weapons, all you're doing is changing the mode of fighting. Yeah. If people want to fight, they're going to find a way to fight, no matter what the yeah, weapons we, available we are. Yeah, before we had automatic weapons. It's, it's, we'll it's fight when we don't have automatic weapons. It's, yeah. it's humanity. Fighting is, is based on the philosophy, not on the... Uh, Mm. And the availability of weapons. Lovely bit where the ape pulls the girl's pigtails. Now, I think they wanted to do something here where they had a uh, an ape slash human child in there, but thought that was a bridge too far. Right. Which also would have shown that history has changed. And again, and I don't know the purpose the of the tear. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Unless that's, like you said, maybe a tear of joy. Yeah. Or, well, it's one or the other. It's it's either a tear of joy or it's a tear of uh, frustration that, that they worked so hard to change the future but couldn't. It's one or the other. 
and it'll work. It works whatever you want to go with it. And uh, I, I think that the fact that we've sat here and spoke about it for 96 minutes and found so much in it to be able to discuss and talk about and so much ambiguity to the storytelling. I don't, I don't think this is as bad as everyone says it is. I really don't. I think it brings the storyline full circle, but there's an awful lot there for you to chew on if you want to. I go beyond that. I, I don't think it's as bad. I think it's, I actually think it's good. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I think there's, there's, it, it depends on what level you want to watch it on. If you want to watch it on the, let me just sit back and enjoy a story and not give it too much thought. I think it works. It's, you know, the pace is quick enough and, and there's enough going on to keep you interested. And if you want to look at it from a more philosophical point of view, which I think we did a little of that here, uh, that works too. But if you want to look at it from a point of view of, oh, look how cheap this was made, then, you know, you've, you've set your own uh, parameters that you're going to not like the movie. No, I enjoyed watching that again. As did I. I hope, uh, I hope anybody listening has enjoyed us talking about it. Yeah, if you managed to stick through it, congratulations and thank you very much. <laughs> I find with the commentaries, often I'll listen to the ones on movies like this where I've seen it enough times uh, that I'll just put it on in the car. I won't actually watch along as I listen mm. because I, I've seen it enough, and as the people are talking about it, I you know I can uh, I can visualize it in my mind anyway. Well, I'll, I'll be interested in hearing if people listen what they thought of it because it's the first time I've done one of these um in like this i mean i've sat down and done commentaries with people before but it's the first time we've done it as a series and i think it's the first time we've really done it we've not done a scene specific commentary though we've talked about the series generally and then addressed points as they've come up it was it was quite interesting how we did that and i know we didn't plan it or certainly i didn't no me neither it was uh <laughs> i you know I, I i think these things work better if you just kind of let them dictate their own pace to you as I opposed to, to trying to plan it out too far in advance, then it would come off as too scripted. Yeah. No, I enjoyed that, Paul. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it too. Thank you for doing it with me. No problem. Maybe we'll, we'll pick another one down the line. If, if people tell us that they like this one, maybe we'll pick <laughs> another movie and do another one at some yeah. point. Yeah, the next time the A-list aren't available. <laughs> <laughs> Bring in the C-listers. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I rank as high as C. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for 
two true freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.